So we're going to go ahead and continue in Romans chapter 9 today. We actually got through the first five verses uh, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, last time we were in Romans. And this is where Paul began to express his deep burden for his people, Israel, his kinsmen according to the flesh, uh, his desire to see them saved and to know Christ as he himself, a Jew, a Pharisee even, had come to know Christ as well. And uh, he even spoke of the fact that uh, of the irony and even the tragic irony uh, of how much they had been given by God that should have set them up to receive Messiah when he ultimately came, but instead they crucified him. And of course, he speaks here about how uh, they were adopted, they had the fathers were given to them, God gave them the law, their service in the temple, all these tremendous privileges that they had come to enjoy. But somehow still, when Messiah came, they rejected him. Uh, and Paul's burden was so deep that he actually said something that I don't believe at all was flippant or just sort of off the cuff. I think that his burden was so great that he could actually utter the words that he would be willing to be accursed from Christ himself if it meant the guarantee of his uh, kinsmen according to the flesh being saved. And so, um, so that being said, that not only is the expression of a tremendous deep burden on Paul's part for his people, but it also then begins a discussion regarding uh, God's dealings with Israel. And it fits within the context of a few different subjects that will find, uh, that will emerge throughout this passage. And that becomes an important thing to start with as we look at this passage. Um, Romans 9 through 11 is most typically uh, a passage that is associated with uh, discussion on the sovereignty of God. And it does. It does. We need to know that right off the bat. The sovereignty of God is a, uh, a very, very prominent uh, discussion throughout these chapters, um, and, and even really began uh, earlier in, in chapter 8, but it certainly you know, uh, um, flows through these three chapters, and so we, we will definitely see that. We also see that discussion, that consideration taking place within uh, the example that is given of Israel. Israel is the focal point. Uh, by and large, not entirely, but by and large throughout the passages, Israel is a major focal point of, uh, of this discussion of God's sovereignty based on the promises that he made to Israel and what that means. And so we're going to begin to pick that apart a little bit today. And, uh, and again, some other things will come up through there as we make our way through. And, and so I'm going to, um, not rush through these three chapters. We're going to take time and we may get through a few verses. We may get through a handful uh, in any given study as we uh, go through this. But let me for now go ahead and start in verse six today. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Uh, but in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Of course, hearkening back into uh, when uh, the promise first came to, to, uh, to Abraham and Sarah about her having a son, even in her old age. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by her father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having, uh, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob, I have loved and Esau, I have hated. Now, this again, it begins to move now into a, um, a, a wonderfully deep, discussion when it comes to questions about the sovereignty of God, his promises toward his people Israel, what that means, who actually is Israel. Questions like this are what 
make up this discussion over the next few chapters. Uh, so we're going to start by laying some foundation for how this will unfold. And I would encourage you to read those three chapters even ahead of time uh, in their entirety. And uh, and let me encourage you to do that because I know that when we get into a passage like this, even even in verse 13, where it already begins to speak about these questions of God's sovereignty in relation to uh, you know, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated the idea that this was decided before they did anything, right? Uh, that the, uh, that the, um, uh, purpose of God according to election may stand as Paul puts it. Um, probably not a bad time for me to lay out in simple terms, um, where I stand and where I land really biblically, uh, in regard to questions of God's sovereignty and, I like to say free will is appropriate, but I like to say man's responsibility. Um, in uh, uh, in this discussion, there tends to be uh, a strong draw to one or the other polar ends of this discussion. One end of the discussion, uh, and one that is very, very prevalent and popular, is, of course, the position that uh, Calvin wrote um, um uh, you know, uh, a lot about, I'm looking for a better word than a lot, but it just escaped me at the moment, uh, wrote uh, voluminously about. But um, and then the other is um, uh, the other side of that, which Arminius wrote about, the idea of God's sovereignty at the expense of man's responsibility. Uh, terms like monergism and synergism come into this discussion. The idea of it is all completely of God, completely devoid of any part that man would play whatsoever, not cooperating at all in any of that kind of thing. Synergism would mean that man does cooperate in some level, in some sense. And of course, there are different approaches to understanding what that might mean or how far that cooperation might go or what elements uh, comprise that cooperation. Um, or if cooperation is even defined the same way in that discussion. And so it's a, it's an important one and it's a deep one and it's a, um, it's a big one. And so that's one end. The other end is where, um, God's sovereignty is put aside so far and the responsibility is so fully on man's part that man can not only come to faith, but can also walk away and, and become unsaved and that kind of thing. So, which again, not that there's no merit to that discussion, but it does seem to me that um, that within the realm of this whole sphere of discussion, uh, there is a lot there that commends itself to our study. And, uh, and so when I say in simple terms, here's where I'm coming from, I am being somewhat simple about the way I'm explaining it because there is a lot of, uh, a lot behind this, but, uh, and it is a topic I continue to study. Uh, I don't want to wreck, you know, get all shaky with the phone, but I've got books and books and books and books uh, on the subject and different approaches to understanding these things and uh, from all kinds of different angles and that and classic writers and modern writers and this kind of thing. So I'm, uh, I am a student of this topic, so I don't come at it lightly. I'm not just sort of saying, uh, I'm not explaining that I land in a certain place just because I really want to, and I want to sort of avoid the difficulty and nuance of this discussion. It's actually a very, very important thing in my mind, especially for a pastor to spend time on and understand. Um, and so the reason, and I'm going to explain where I come at in just a minute, but the, uh, let me just finish the thought on why I think it's important to read through Romans 9 through 11, um, is because again, when we come to this discussion, it strikes fear in the hearts of many. Many become very, very unsettled at the prospect of God sovereignly electing people to be saved, which carries with it by definition uh, naturally, then, the fact that God chose some not to be. Uh, and so that seems strange. Uh, there are some uh, who discuss this quite eloquently 
uh, that try to explain why it is that people land, uh, have, you know, really reject the idea of God's sovereignty at that level. Uh, sometimes it's, uh, it's expressed as being, well, because in America we have freedoms and choice and this kind of thing. And so I can't believe that God wouldn't be at least like that and that sort of thing. Um, others, uh, arrive at, at sort of a, they sort of bristle at the idea of God's sovereignty because they haven't read a lot of what the scripture says on the subject. They just are troubled by it and, and just, you know, uh, out of that sense of fear of where it may lead them, maybe want to avoid it. Uh, let me gently say um, that that we never really want to do that because uh, it's not just that we're avoiding looking at what the Bible may say about a subject, but it also then therefore leaves us in a position where we are formulating our own ideas of how things are when in fact we don't actually know that they are that way because we haven't spent time looking in the scripture at it. So let me encourage you to be willing to sort of set aside the trepidation and read through these passages and read through it a number of times. And don't assume that you're going to have a full understanding of all this stuff in in, in your first few readings. Uh, I've been a believer for about 30 years. I've, I've This discussion has came across my, you know, across my, uh, you know, I came across it, you know, early on in my, in my Christian life. And I thought I understood it really, really well when I was a young believer. But the more I study it, the more I realize that I think I have a good understanding of the subject. But I do recognize that there is something that much like Paul at the end of Romans 11, just sort of throws up his hands and worships over the grandness of this concept. Um, I, I find myself in the same place. And so, uh, so having said all that, a bit of a preamble to the preamble of getting into the passage, let me now just express where I land on this, just so you know where I'm coming from. I may have scared some of you there thinking, okay, well, if he's going to go into this whole, God's, maybe God didn't choose me or something, I want to, I want to set your mind at ease about that. That's not where I come from. Uh, here's where I do land on this. I do think that the Bible, and forgive me if you've heard me say this, because I, I do tend to really accentuate some of these ideas a little bit here in explaining my position on this. Uh, and so you've heard me do this, maybe I sound a little bit repetitive, redundant and all, but but let me do it anyway. So um, when it comes to the question of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, I am convinced that the Bible teaches very, very clearly two things. I'm going to say the first, and I'm going to ask you to stick with me while I say the first so I can get to the second. The first is that the Bible does clearly say that God sovereignly elects. Uh, passages like verse 11 here, where we're, we're told that God... Um, made a decision about something before they ever were alive to do anything. This The, the brothers, uh, Jacob and Esau, on that. Passages like this, uh, or even in Jesus' own words, where he speaks about, um, you know, um, unless I call you, you don't come in this kind of thing. All these, there's lots and lots of passages that speak about this very, very clearly. And I, and I would say the mistake that we make sometimes uh, when we're teaching about these things, you know, this is again uh, pastors and teachers and and folks that that attempt to address these things in a setting where they have influence. I think our our uh, what has happened a lot is that we tend to try and water those passages down uh, to a point where we sort of redefine what they're actually saying. Um, in the same way that I would say we don't want to set aside reading something because we're afraid of where it may lead us. I would say it's also a dangerous thing to take a passage that is abundantly clear in its context and lines up well with a lot of other passages of Scripture within context that make a specific point in this regard. The Bible teaches God's sovereign election. There's just no way around that. That's the first thing. Clear as day. The Bible teaches that. However, the Bible teaches that man is also responsible 
there is a measure of legitimate, and I like to really emphasize legitimate, responsibility that man has to respond to the message of the gospel. Uh, In other words, man does seem to have the capacity to accept or reject the gospel, and he is held responsible by God himself for that choice. Now, the reason I emphasize legitimate is because if man has no choice, then to express it as though he did is a very bizarre way to um, to do that. It's and I'm not I'm not casting aspersions on God. What I am is questioning sort of the level and degree to which we sometimes go in one direction on this discussion at the expense of what the scriptures teach uh, on the other side of this. And so. Um, this is one of those topics, by the way. Um, I, I had a conversation recently with somebody in regard to, um, you know, understanding biblical doctrine and concepts and ideas that are expressed in Scripture, uh, and that is that when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to the major doctrines of the faith, when it comes to the ongoing, uh, you know, the the cover to cover explanation of theology within Scripture, in this, doctrines are not based on a verse. In other words, we don't find a verse, and that's what that's what the whole doctrine is based on. Uh, the Trinity, for example, I think that may have been the context in which we're having this discussion. So, um, I think it was actually might have been last a uh, couple Sundays ago when we were talking about the Trinity. Um, but we don't believe in the Trinity because there's a verse where God says, "I am triune in nature." There's not. Um, even first John five, seven, we kind of discussed that a little bit on that Sunday morning a little bit, and it's, it's problematic nature and, and it's well-known problematic nature within Bible scholarship. So, um, but there's, even if there was a verse that said that, that would not be the whole total reason why we hold a view on a particular doctrine. Uh, for example, with the, with the doctrine of the Trinity, there are many, 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 many passages throughout scripture that round out our picture of both God's singleness in terms of his being. There is one God. Christians are not not, uh, uh, polytheists or tritheists or however you'd want to say that. We are monotheists. We believe in one God. And the Bible says this often, places like Isaiah 40, what, 43, 4, and 5, and 6, where God over and over says things like, "I I am the Lord and I know of no other. I alone am God. There is no one beside me. And all these kinds of uh, the very clear expressions of God's uh, uniqueness in his deity and, and, his, and his, his, the being that there's only one God. However, the scriptures also do throughout fill in the picture of God's expressing himself and, and, and revealing himself as being triune in nature. Father, uh, we can say son or eternal word, and Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's not just the New Testament. Uh, it is clear enough in the Old Testament. And when we get to the New Testament, there seems to have been a, a clarity of this revelation to the writers because there is an assumption of Trinitarian theology that 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 is an undercurrent throughout the entire New Testament. Uh, and so, again, this is not a study on the Trinity, but just, you know, the point I'm making is that we don't believe a doctrine based on a verse or a couple of verses. We build a doctrine and an understanding of theology based on what the scriptures say uh, throughout. And we build a case based on lots and lots of data from the scripture. Um, we, we, you know, we, uh, the picture becomes more well filled out as we uh, go through the entire scripture and see what it says on a subject. This is one of those. Um, there are passages that, again, very clearly express the sovereignty of God, sovereign election. Uh, and there are also passages that clearly express 
um, the responsibility, the legitimate responsibility that man has to respond to God's actual trying to bring this person. I, trying is a clumsy way to put it. We're already getting into trouble when we say trying, like God is trying to do something but is unable to do it kind of a thing. No, but there is an actual giving of opportunity for people to respond, but yet they don't. And therefore they are held responsible for it. Well, somebody who is predestined uh, or is... Um, uh, is not elect is a better way to put that. Predestination often deals with the what you are elected to. But uh, if someone is not elected, um, then they have no capacity to believe uh, and that kind of thing. So there is the problem arises not that the Bible says that God is sovereign in his elective purposes and foreknowledge and such. And the problem is not that the Bible also says man has legitimate responsibility to respond to these things. The problem is reconciling the two. We have no problem finding the finding in context clearly expressed truth uh, about under underlying both of these things, but trying to reconcile them is a difficult thing. And so, uh, and as a matter of fact, I I would suggest that whereas there are some that claim to really have an understanding of this, um, I after listening and reading and all of this, I just. I just cannot get there personally. And I find myself thinking, well, I think really we probably only know about this much. But those who claim to understand this and think that they kind of know this much, I don't think they actually do. I think that it's um, there's a, a bias toward one side at the expense of the other. And I don't mean that to sound insulting. I'm not casting aspersions on brilliant minds that have spent time on this, certainly f- massively geometrically greater minds than mine. Um, but, but again, I'm not casual about this subject either. You know, I've, uh, I've had friends over the years give me books to read and I've devoured them. I've had, uh, I've, I've watched lectures, you know, and, and people discuss these things and, and, um, and, and I find myself still having questions as to buying fully into that side. Now I would say in, uh, you know, just to continue that thought, I have no real connection with the Arminius view. I really don't, uh, see at all, uh, how, man is so free to just choose to believe or not believe. I do believe, again, somehow there is a working together, uh, which again, I guess I could be accused of being a synergist in this. Although again, I think the definition of synergism is maybe in question a little bit on this. But but if it just simply means that there is some point at which God's sovereignty and man's responsibility actually meet, that's where I land on it. Uh, I don't, I don't know uh, how they work together. And uh, after all that rambling for 20 minutes, I, I don't know how the two of those work together. So uh, do you ever see a Stargate? Uh, it just came to my mind here, but there's, they all show up for this discussion that the main guy's giving about Egyptians and all this kind of stuff and where the pyramids came from. And they're all wanting to hear where it came from. And he says, well, I don't know where they came from. They all leave all disappointed. Well, I feel like I just did that to y'all. So uh, again, there's my inner nerd uh, coming out, but Anyway, so that's where I land. I want to make sure I express that because as we go through Romans 9 through 11, there are going to be times when I hit sovereignty pretty hard. Like this is, God clearly is sovereign in this. But on the other hand, I'm also going to point out areas where it seems that, and I'll reference places even in Romans itself, Paul, the same author uh, early in Romans. I, I, I tend to really lean toward Romans 1 as a good example of this, where man is clearly given the responsibility to respond and is held responsible for not responding. Again, that's where the idea of legitimate responsibility, I, I would, I would, I would say, comes from. So, anyway, so I want to lay that out there, sort of a bit of a spoiler. I don't want you wondering where I really land on this throughout, because 
Um, I, I just want to be fair and honest and open about that. I'm, I'm going to be very, very, I'm going to speak well of both of those perspectives because I think they both exist in Scripture. So that being said, um, this is already pretty long, so we're not really going to get into the text like I was thinking, but maybe it was worth it to take a minute to just sort of explore a little bit of this as we move into it and just sort of lay a foundation and a bit of an introduction to where we're going on this. I would say in verse 6 and 7, though, it does open up a uh, an element to our understanding of soteriology, salvation, and, and what it's about, um, what the promises to Israel are about. Um, even, matter of fact, let me read verses 6 and 7 again. I'll read verses 6 through 8, actually. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Again, he's speaking the idea that Israel has rejected their Messiah. They've turned their back on the one that God sent, the one who's promised them they should have recognized. And so therefore, it's like, well, gosh, are they lost forever? And Paul says, you know, essentially that's the thought. It's like, oh my gosh, they've, you know, they've turned their back on him. And so Paul is responding to that and saying, but it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel, nor are they children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And that is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now, at this point, there has been a pretty strong divide in regard to an understanding of Israel. And again, we're not going to do justice in the time we have left here, but we are going to talk about this some more in the days to come as the passages unfold here through these chapters. Um, But the question then comes up, okay, well, God's promises will stand because he made these promises, but is he going to fulfill them differently than we would have assumed? Because after all, Paul just said, it's not really those who are Israel by virtue of being the actual physical seed of Abraham, but rather they are the children of God if they are children of God by faith is where he's going with this. And he even points to Isaac as, as not being Abraham, but being this, the, the promise uh, that was given to Abraham. And so um, he also, the promises were reiterated to Isaac. And so, um, so we begin to sort of add an element to our understanding here of what may be in view when the idea of Israel is described. Well, let me again throw a couple of things that begin to lay some foundation to where I'm coming from on this point, because this is another very important point to understand. Um, I do not in any way believe that Paul is diminishing the actual national ethnic element of Israel in this. And the reason I think that is because throughout the passage, he will go back to the fact that his kinsmen according to the flesh, those who are the seed of Abraham, those uh, they will, there will be mention of them being the focal point of God trying to bring them in, even to the point where Gentiles are saved, you know, because of the love of God and, and, and his glory and all this kind of thing. But also there's an additional reason, and it's to provoke Israel to jealousy that they might come and be saved. There is mention of how um, uh, there is a point at which the gen- fullness of the Gentiles will come in and God once again turns his eye on Israel. We'll talk more about that in chapter 11. Uh, so when we see this happening here, this doesn't shift, and suddenly national ethnic Israel, the seed of Abraham, physically are cast aside, and now just those who are, are believers by faith, uh, somehow this changes our understanding of, of Israel and, and by connection, eschatology and these kinds of things. It is, in fact, once again, hearkening to the idea that we don't build doctrine on a verse or two, but we develop doctrine based on uh, the the 
doing our best to get an exhaustive or at least as meaningful as humanly possible looking at the scripture uh, to build our understanding. I will say that when it comes to our understanding of Israel, it's not an either-or proposition. It's not either the seed of Abraham, physically speaking, genetically speaking, Hebrews, and it's not or uh, those who are only Israel by faith having anything to do with this. There is a... um, a grand coming together of these ideas of those who are national ethnic Israel and those who are spiritual Israel, these things find their coming together in promises like the millennium and the millennial kingdom in this kind of thing. Um, Yes, a Jew who never comes to believe in Christ but dies in rejection of Christ is not saved. But nor nor does a Jew somehow cease to be a Jew by becoming a Christian. They become... We sometimes use terms like fulfilled Jew or completed Jew and this kind of thing, but they become every bit and, and you know, uh, understandably so, the inheritors of the promises made to their ethnic people. However, as Paul will describe in these chapters, we who are Gentiles and not children of the promise are grafted into the vine, the vine being those children of the promise. And so there is both the understanding that uh, that Gentiles will come by faith and those who are believing Jews will come by faith in Messiah as well. These these ideas need to be understood for what they are so that we don't misunderstand other elements of theology. Again, things like eschatology and that. So we're going to talk about some of this again as we make our way through. But for now, I'm going to go ahead and uh, and wrap for there. And um, we'll say we got through verse 8 right now, but we'll probably touch on it again when we come back to it next time we're in the book of Romans. So thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Uh, It is entirely possible that you may have questions. Uh, You may uh, uh, agree or disagree with a couple of the points that I made here along the way today. My hope was to put at ease anybody who was worrying that I was going really far one way or the other in regard to election and and responsibility. Um, And uh, again, that's just where I come from. So hopefully that was more helpful than harmful. So but if you have any questions or thoughts or anything you want to share, you can do that by um, by uh, going to the comment section on our YouTube channel. Um, we uh, also have an audio version of this podcast, and you can go to my website at parsonspad.com, and you can uh, subscribe to the audio version there. Uh, you can go to our website at calvarychapelfranklin.com uh, and watch some of these videos too. If you want to email me, you can do so uh, uh, linking off of my website, as I mentioned earlier, or you can just simply type in info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. And uh, be glad to try and address those as best I can. I do fall behind a little bit on some of that. I know there's a, there's a whole bunch of comments and, and questions and stuff in the comments section on our YouTube channel right now, and uh, even through my website that I have not gotten to yet. I'm aware of them, and I read them all, and I, I do try to respond, so I will eventually get to catching up on those. So, But thank you again for, for, for joining in our study of the Word of God, and I uh, encourage you to join us again as we continue. So, Father, thank you. And, We bless you, Lord, how we love you and thank you for all you've done for us. Father, when we study theology and we begin to understand uh, just your grandness and your the scope of, yeah, of course we don't understand fully the scope of who you are, but when we begin to delve into these things and begin to uh, seek after an understanding of, of some of these really lofty ideas and concepts, we really are humbled by it. And so we just do pray that by your Holy Spirit, uh, him working in our hearts and minds to illuminate the scripture, that we would come to know you better, uh, and that we would uh, develop a more thorough and uh, and meaningful understanding of theology. 
that Father, this wouldn't just be for you know teachers and pastors and erudite or anything like that, but all of us would take on the idea of seeking to uh, to have a good understanding of these things. Help us also to never avoid reading passages because we're afraid of where they might lead, but rather instead to dig into them and consider all that the Scripture has to say about the ideas that are in view so that we build a good, well-rounded sense of what's going on. Uh, Father, we don't want to neglect parts of your Word because they might be hard to, to understand, uh, Peter even encouraged people to read Paul's letter, even letters, even though they were hard to understand. So help us to take that same attitude and approach uh, and help us uh, to grow thereby. Uh, we know that, um, Lord, it is a rewarding pursuit to dig into your word because in getting to know the word of God, we are, of course, getting to know the God of the word. So thank you for this, Lord. We just pray that you continue to bless and lead our times together. In Jesus' name, amen. <music>